Well, if you've got your Bible, take it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Just over three weeks, our uh, houses are going to be full of excitement and all kinds of laughter and happiness. I mean, the, the one thing that's going to take place that has been on the mind of probably every single kid in our church and in this area, and perhaps even in our country for the past 12 months, is going to take place. Christmas will be upon us. And so your children and my children, they're going to wake up earlier on that Tuesday morning than they will wake up on any other Tuesday morning ever in a week. And uh, if you've got young kids, you know how that is. It's hard to get them out of bed to go to school, but they will flat drag you out of bed so that they can open their presents. And that's what's going to happen in just a few weeks. They're going to run down the stairs, at least at my house. They're going to uh, look at the tree. They're going to see with incredible anticipation of what uh, transpired during the night, what arrived miraculously underneath the tree. And they're going to filter through those packages looking for their name. They don't really care about anyone else's name. They're looking for their name. And like at my house, they're going to laugh and giggle, and then they're going to do that until they can't stand it anymore, and they're going to run to mom and dad's room to wake mom and dad up so that they can open presents. But the funny thing about this, they never come quietly. It's like a stampede of horses coming into the room to wake you up. They've got clashing cymbals, whistles, and air horns because it's time to get up. And yet when I try to do that on a regular Tuesday morning to get them ready for school, I am met with all sorts of vitriol. But uh, that's not the case on Christmas. I don't know about you, but I I love Christmas. I loved it as a kid. I love it as an adult. I mean, as a child, it was the best part of the year. It was the, the best morning of the year for two reasons, really. Presence and family, right? Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. That's really what is on a, a child's mind. Presence and getting to hang out with some family members on a special day. And it's amazing as you grow older how your perspective changes a little bit. Uh, today as an adult, uh, as a middle-aged man, I, I still, in my mind, and still my heart, this is the most a special morning of the entire year, and I love it for two reasons. But this time it's family and presence. It's flip-flopped a little bit. See, the morning is special because I, I don't necessarily get to receive gifts. That's not what's important to me now. It's I get to give them. I get to see the joy on a child's face. I get to see the joy on my wife's face, even though she tells me I'm terrible at gifts. Uh, she fakes it pretty good when I give her something. I'm kidding with you, babe. I'll, I'll pay for that one later. Took a shot across the bow, and it'll come back to haunt me later. But uh, we've been we've looked at this verse uh, in the last several weeks. Jesus said there, it's recorded in Acts chapter twenty. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I believe that's one of the things you learn as you mature in your faith is that it, it is more blessed. It's it's more enjoyable. It's more fun to give rather than just to be a recipient of things. And so as we grow in the Lord, this truth becomes more and more clear to us. We begin to really understand the joy and the sense of satisfaction that comes from giving rather than receiving. The the gift of being able to give someone else something is such a blessing in our life. There's absolutely nothing like it. I mean, you know what it's like. You see the joy of your kids and grandkids as they see those presents and they're tearing into those things. It's a joy. You see the joy in someone's face when you understand a need in their life and you step in and you meet that need, maybe even anonymously, but you have a joy and a deep sense of satisfaction knowing that you were able to invest in someone's life. And then also as as believers, as members of God's church, we have the joy of being able to participate in his mission. 
As we give through the church, as we give through this church to, to be a blessing to the nations, there's a deep sense of joy and a deep sense of satisfaction within our hearts, knowing that we're just doing this because we love Jesus and we love people, therefore we are obedient to God. And so there's a sense of gratification and satisfaction that comes with that. Why? I believe it's because the Bible teaches us that as we grow in our sanctification, we're becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ, and the image of Christ is giving. Jesus is a giver. And since Jesus is a giver, this Christmas season, there are some gifts under the tree for you, metaphorically speaking, of course. There's a couple gifts over here, but we'd have to pray over them and lay hands. And I bet they're empty boxes. So we'll just say metaphorically, there is a gift for you this morning. And that's what we want to talk about over the next several weeks during this Christmas season is we're going to talk about a Christmas gift for you. Uh, many of you last Sunday got the little Christmas Code devotional book. If you hadn't gotten one of those, I believe there's some more in the foyer. But this season, this Advent season, we're using this Christmas Code devotional book really as the backdrop for our sermon series leading up to Christmas. Uh, this devotion and, th and this sermon series is going to help us think through the advent or the coming of Christ and the difference it makes in our life. I mean, why is it that, that Jesus came? Why did he come to this earth? Why did he come to die on a cross and to be buried in a tomb? What was the purpose in his advent? This morning, I, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying to us in this place. This morning, he says to us, my Christmas gift for you is this. It's my presence. My Christmas gift to you is my presence. It's myself. Look there in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. Let's set the stage for what I want to share with you in just a, a, a few moments. Matthew says in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus. In the second half of... Matthew chapter 1, we encounter here the, the most extraordinary miracle in the entire Bible. And it's the, remote, it's the most remarkable mystery in the whole universe. You know the story that we just read. It's the story of Jesus' conception and birth. This miraculous mystery is described in eight simple verses here in Matthew's gospel. And referring to this miracle, J.I. Packer uh, says this. He says, it's right here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. In other words, our souls ought to be captivated with fascinating glory in the midst of this very familiar story. It's God's revealing of himself to you and I. In this passage, we learn 
two significant things about the advent of Christ. First of all, we learn how Jesus came. We learn here how Jesus came. Joseph, Matthew tells us, was betrothed to this young lady, probably 13, 14-year-old, young lady named Mary. And you probably know this, in the Jewish culture, to be betrothed meant that you were engaged, but it was not just a simple engagement where if you wanted to give the ring back in our day and time, you could do that. No, this was a legally binding type of relationship, yet there were still boundaries to their relationship. The, the bond to one another had not yet been fulfilled. It, it had not yet been consummated is another way of looking at it. So one day, Mary, who is betrothed to Joseph, had to share with him some very difficult news. Can you imagine being Joseph and can you imagine being Mary? She has to come to him one day and maybe he saw it and asked her a question, but somehow a conversation took place between the both of them when she had to say, Joseph, I am pregnant, but I've never been unfaithful to you. What a difficult time that must have been for her. And for Joseph, it would have been as equally disturbing to him. As he looks at his bride-to-be and the woman he loves, he obviously cared deep, deeply for her. And he sees her, that she's pregnant. She hear, he hears the words that she's saying, I am carrying the son of someone else, but I've never been unfaithful to you. How in the world can you wrestle those two concepts? And so Joseph, being a loving, caring, kind guy, doesn't want to, to, to hurt Mary in any way. And even though legally he could have brought charges against her for what seemed to be unfaithfulness in this relationship. And so Joseph resolved to quietly release her from the marriage. And then Matthew tells, me, tells us that one night an angel visited Joseph in a dream. And, and this angel, probably Gabriel, like is, is shown in, in Luke chapter 2 and 3. You, you see there this angel comes and he tells Joseph everything that Mary's already told him. That he confirms this story. That the baby she was carrying was from the Holy Spirit. The angel instructed Joseph to take Mary as his wife and to name the boy Jesus. For he would be the one to save his people from their sins. You see, it's in the name here of Jesus, this name to be given to this baby, that we discover a very significant second thing about the advent of Christ. Not only do we see how he came, we see why Jesus came. His name is Jesus. Yeshua is in Hebrew. It simply means Lord is salvation, or our Lord is salvation, or the Lord saves. What the angel is telling Joseph is this, God is visiting man and he's bringing salvation with him. God is going to bring his presence into mankind. It's an amazing thing when you think about transcendent God stepping into time and space. God becoming human. He, 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 he coming to be with us is what the Bible tells us. He is Emmanuel, God with us, came for the purpose of saving us from our sins. And so with this good news of God's Christmas gift to you and I this morning, as it being our backdrop, I want to share with you three simple truths about Christ's presence in our life. This is what's in your bulletin this morning. As we think about the presence of Jesus, and let me just first of all say this, God's presence in our life means transformation. It means transformation. All throughout the Gospels, you see that when Jesus stepped into relationship with a person, with another human being, that person was radically transformed. So let me share with you these three truths. First of all, Jesus came to you to root you in his family. 
to root you into his family, to sink you, sink your roots deep into his family tree. I was on a, a bus not just not long ago, a few weeks ago, on a field trip with one of my daughters, and on the way back, I was setting. Uh, our daughters wanted to set together, so we had nowhere else to set. So her mom and myself were sitting there, and we got to talking about ancestry. And the, uh, her family's been into this DNA, looking back and seeing who's in your family tree, and and you, you know what I'm talking about. You see the commercials all the time on the TV. It's become really a incredibly large industry in our nation. I mean, you got uh, websites and, and companies like Ancestry.com and FamilyTree.com and 23andMe.com and all of these services and probably others. What they do is they take DNA from you and they use it, they process it in order to use that DNA to connect you to your ancestors, to the people and the places from which you come, right? They tell the story. They tell the backstory of your life. And DNA is, in a, is an amazing thing. If you don't remember exactly what DNA is, if you can't remember that far back to elementary school or junior high, whenever we learned it back in the day, DNA is simply deoxyribonucleic acid. That's what we're made up of, right? That sounds really just wonderful. But that's the genetic information of our persons. That's, it carries the codes of, of what we are to be or how we're going to be. It's unique to each and every one of us. None of us look the same, talk the same, act the same. We all are unique, and yet there is something within us that is similar. And so that pattern, that genetic pattern, is laid out in our DNA. The information there reveals what proclivities we may have regarding disease. Some may get sick with some things, and others may not get sick with those things because of the genetic makeup there. It uh, it shows us our intellect, it points to our temperaments, and everything in our life is laid out in our DNA. You could say it this way, it connects us to our roots. Here in Matthew chapter 1, we find Jesus' earthly roots. 47 different names are laid out in this genealogy. How many of you, just by way of confession this morning, when you come to a genealogy in Scripture, you just skip over it? Any just brave people this morning say, yes, Lord, I confess this is sin. I'll be at the altar later this morning. Yeah, some of us do that. Let's be honest. Or uh, we, we may skim it really quickly. We're not skipping it, but we skim it, and we don't fully read it. And the reason sometimes we don't read it is because it's full of names we can't pronounce, right? And, and you're just, you, I don't know, that's Larry, it's Tom, it's Susan. Uh, you know, you know, we just make up names for them, right? So sometimes we pass over genealogies. For the, fake, for the sake of them being difficult to pronounce, other times we pass over them because we just don't understand why they're there. We may even rationalize that they're unimportant in Scripture. Here's something that you need to understand as a Bible reader, studier, and a student. Everything God has recorded in the Bible for you is important. Amen? Even maps. And that's probably an addition. But it's all important. The, God has not given us his word so that we can pick and choose what's important or in what is unimportant. It is all important. And so genealogies are important. Here in the Gospels, we find two different genealogies for Jesus. We find one in Luke chapter 3, where Luke there is recording a genealogy, tracing the physical lineage of Jesus back to Adam or Adam to Jesus. And so he's writing to emphasize Jesus as the Son of Man. 
Matthew, in his gospel, begins with Abraham and moves forward to Jesus. He writes to make clear that Jesus is king. If you, uh, We're going to look at it in just a moment, but he starts with David and he speaks of Abraham. So he's emphasizing the kingship and the messianic side of who Jesus is. He's the promised one coming from the line of Abraham with the legal uh, position of king coming from David. So Matthew is tracing the legal lineage of Jesus from Abraham. If you will, there in Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 1. Matthew says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then skip down to verse 16. We're not going to read all those verses, even though I told you they're important, but I'm going to point out some of them in just a moment. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And in between those two verses that we've just read are sandwiched this earthly root of Jesus. As we look here, we see that the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus' family tree doesn't end with this genealogy. We're not looking back and saying, Jesus came from David and Abraham, but everything culminated and ended with him. No, what we're seeing in the gospel is this, is that Jesus' family tree continues to flourish and branches out further and further. In fact, if we were to look at this from a spiritual standpoint, Jesus is the, 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 the center for upon which everything else grows in this tree. It's not that he came from them. They came from him. We are part of Jesus' spiritual family tree if we've placed faith in him. And so, through faith, we can experience the presence of God in our lives and be born again into his forever family. We can be rooted into the family of God. Think about that. You can be rooted into the family of God. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how great or how poor your earthly family may be. You can be rooted into God's family. This is why Jesus came. He came to root you into that family. Therefore, the most important thing in your life is not that you know who your great-grandfather is or your great-great-great-great-great-grandma and where you came from overseas and, and all of the different things that you can learn from your DNA through these different services. Those things are important. Those things are fun. But the most important thing in your life is to know that you are rooted in the family of God. And how do you know that? It's by coming by faith to Jesus Christ Because he's the one that roots you to God. Secondly, Jesus came to you so that you might come to him. Jesus came to you so that you might come to him. Look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 2. There in the first part of it, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And then skip down to the second part of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. Now, as you carefully read through this genealogy... You, you notice something about the family tree of Jesus. You notice that it has some very interesting, interesting and even questionable characters involved in this family tree. Who was Abraham? Well, we know Abraham was an idolater. We, we know that. He was not a person who was seeking after God. God came calling to Abraham. He was in, in his, his land. He was chasing after his gods. He was doing his thing. And God came to him and said, Abraham, I want you to get up and go to a place I've not yet told you. I want you to get up and go. And Abraham believed God and he did it. 
What else do we know about Abraham? We also know that, that there was an element of fear in his life. Even though he's on mission with God, doing what God called him and told him to do, there were moments in his life where he questioned whether or not God would come through and he tried to inst- or implement his own agenda in it, even so much so as saying, this is not my wife, she's my sister, and lying. He does that on a number of occasions. So Abraham was a faithful man, and yet Abraham in some instances was a fearful man that led to his lying. It's not the father Abraham we typically want to remember. What else do we know about Abraham? Well, if he's leaving his family and his home, everything that was familiar to him, there was also some grief there. There There's probably some despair. There was also some wrestling within his heart. And so he was troubled, I'm sure, in this decision. You look down and further in the genealogy and you come to a, a man by the name of Judah, One of the twelve tribes of Israel, the father of that tribe. And Judah had two sons, but he didn't have these sons by his wife that are mentioned here in the genealogy. They came through the wife of one of his sons. Perez and Zerah were two sons who were born to his son's wife. His son died, and, and there was no heir given to that son later on. And so the woman, Tamar, she... um orchestrated events in such a way to pose as a prostitute. Uh, Judah came in, and you know the rest of the story. Through an ancestral relationship, God created some roots for the Son of God. You move on down, you see Rahab. She was the prostitute there in Jericho. Ruth is mentioned, and we know a little bit about Ruth. She spent a a rather shady night there at the feet of Boaz in Ruth chapter 3. But more importantly about, Mo, about, about Ruth is that she was a Moabitess. She was a foreigner. She was from a people known for their gross sexual immorality. Then we come to David and Bathsheba. And here you've got the great king of Israel who looks down from his, his uh, tower and he sees a woman bathing on the rooftop and he desires her. And you know the rest of the story. Adultery takes place. Murder takes place to cover it up. And all of these things transpire. There are some interesting characters in the lineage of Jesus. So the family tree of Jesus here is littered with brokenness. It's littered with guilt and loneliness and fear and sins of every kind. It tells really the story of mankind. It pictures the separation that our sin creates between God and each one of us. Like the people who are listed here, you and I are in a broken mess. Even in our worship center here this morning, we all come from a a line of brokenness. All sorts of family issues and problems, struggles we even have right now in our life. And Jesus comes to us in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in our mess. And he does so so that we might come to him. He bore the sin on the cross. He offered himself as a holy sacrifice so that we could come to him. We can't come on our own. We didn't want to come on our own. But Jesus, in Ephesians 2.14, tells us he is the one who broke down the dividing wall of hostility between God and man. Who was making it hostile? It wasn't God. It was us. We are the enemies of God in our sin. But Jesus has come so that we might come to him. A third truth that I want to share with you this morning is this. As we think about the presence of Jesus, we see here that Jesus came to you in order to rewrite your story. Look at verse 5. It says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. 
I've already mentioned some of the questionable characters in the family tree of Jesus, but we see some others right here. In all of this, as you read through the genealogies, you look at these names and you remember the stories that they represent, do you see the grace of God represented there? The grace of God in all of these stories is being used to rewrite their story. We should see it all over these pages. I mean, think about it. But for the grace of God, how could Tamar, a woman who dressed as a prostitute in order to seduce Judah, her father-in-law, and thereby conceive an illegitimate child, how could she ever be included into God's story but for the grace of God? How could Rahab, the prostitute there in Jericho, factor into God's plan of redemption? But she does. How could Ruth, a foreigner, and Bathsheba, most likely a foreigner as well as because, because Uriah the Hittite, her husband, was a foreigner. She most likely also was a foreigner. But here, she's a foreigner as well as an adulterer. How could she find her way into the history of God's people? And yet she does. She becomes the father or the, the mother of Solomon who continues the line of kings all the way to Jesus Christ. You see the grace of God here. There's a song out on the radio in the last several weeks that's really ministered to my heart. Chris Tomlin is the author, or at least the singer of this song. The song is called, Nobody Loves Me Like You. And the second verse of this song is really what grabs my heart. Look at these words on the screen. It says this, story. I could have had a really different story, but you came down from heaven to restore me. Forever saved my life. That is the grace of of God. If we were to go around the room this morning, we were just to kind of popcorn and say what we think our lives could have been like apart from Jesus, we would be clear in every situation to know that if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would be different. But Jesus came in. Jesus rewrote our story. Jesus changed our destiny. Jesus changed our eternal address. Jesus, Jesus changed our want-tos, and everything in our life has been transformed. Why? Because of the grace of God that comes through the presence of Jesus in our lives. This is what Jesus did for Abraham. It's what he did for Judah and Tamar and Rahab and David and Bathsheba, and the list goes on and on and on to you and I even sitting here today. People in India who hear the gospel and respond to it in faith. He is the one transforming and rewriting their story. No longer following Allah, but now turning to the one true king, Jesus Christ. This morning, if Jesus has rewritten your story, what would you be like if it wasn't for him? Where would you be today if it wasn't for Jesus? What would your life be like had you not met Jesus. John Bradford was a 16th century Protestant English pastor. He and others were imprisoned in the Tower of London by Queen Mary I, better known as Bloody Mary. He and these other Protestant pastors and, and believers were locked up in that tower for simply refusing to acknowledge the authority of the Pope, and they were charged as being insurrectionists. One day in the tower, the, the legend is told that there in the tower, Bradford looks down. He sees a criminal being led to an execution. Simultaneously, while he feels compassion for the criminal and at the same time relief because he's in a better situation himself, not facing execution, Bradford allegedly uttered this famous quotation that you've probably heard. There but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. You see, if it wasn't for the grace of God, we all would be able to look at all kinds of sinfulness in this world and say, there go I. 
But for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, I could be a murderer. But for the grace of God, I could be a swindler. But for the grace of God, I could be an adulterer. But for the grace of God, I could be a God-hater and, and, and wanting nothing to do with God. But because of the grace of God, because Jesus came to me, I was able to come to him. And he has rewritten my story. This Christmas story, this Christmas season, as we think about the advent of Jesus, we need to understand that the gift Jesus gives us is this. It's his presence. The greatest thing we have been given is simply the presence of God in our lives. Christmas is a beautiful time of the year. Our worship center is decorated beautifully. We see lights all over. Celebrations are taking place. It's the most wonderful time of the year. But I understand this morning that as we celebrate the advent of Christ and we gather together and with family and friends and do all of this, this also means that this time of year is difficult for some. This Christmas season may be for you the first time you haven't had mama at the Christmas dinner. It's the first time you haven't had your husband or wife or grandfather or friend. So everything is going to be forever changed. The month of December is difficult for some people. In fact, it holds more grief than any other month of the year. In the midst of all of the Christmas caroling and decorating, loneliness haunts even some of us in this room today. In fact, I read something the other day that said that more suicides are attempted in the month of December than any other month. That's, that was startling to me to think about that. Perhaps you're one of those who feel lonely this Christmas season. In fact, I've, I've known this over the years, pastoring, that because of the loneliness people feel, sometimes they just lay out of church because they don't want to be reminded. They don't want to see other families getting to, to celebrate with their families and loved ones, and so they just kind of isolate themselves. If that's you this morning, I want you to feel the presence of God and His gift to you this morning. The Bible tells us that in Jesus, God has come to be with you. He understands your grief. He understands your pain. He understands your struggle this morning. And behind the lives of all the men and women, here in this gospel genealogy, there was grief, and there was pain, and there was loneliness, and there was all kinds of hurt and brokenness. And yet what we see in this genealogy is they made it. This morning, I want to encourage you with these words. You will make it as well. By the grace of God, you will make it. Your church family loves you. Your Savior loves you. And so you will make it. The grace of God is sufficient for you. This morning, if you have a checkered and sinful past, the grace of God is enough to change that past. There's grace and there's the gift of God's presence for you. He has come so that you might come to him. This question this morning is this, will I come to Jesus? Will I receive him into my life? Will I allow him to step in and, and touch the brokenness there, and touch the hurt and remove the pain from my life? This morning I want you to see that Jesus offers to you the gift of his presence. So let's pray. Let's thank the Lord for his presence and let's ask him to embrace that in our lives. Lord Jesus, thank you for being a God who doesn't just set aloft and aloof from our struggles and our pain and our brokenness and the mess of our lives. Lord, we thank you that though you are a transcendent God and, and above and, and outside of all things, yet at the same time you are intimately involved in every facet and every detail of our lives. 
You know the thoughts that we think. Lord, you know the, the trouble in our hearts when, when no one else is around, when we're in the quietness of our home and we're mourning the loss of a loved one or we're regretting decisions that we've made in our past. You know those hurts and those struggles. God, many in our church in this last year have buried loved ones. Their Christmas will never be the same. And Lord, you know that. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be a strong help in their time of trouble. That your presence would be felt. Minister deep into their hearts. Heal those wounds. Bind up the brokenhearted. God, I pray you would even minister to us this morning. Father, I pray that those who are walking at a guilty distance in our church would come and just say, Lord Jesus, if you can change the checkered past of the people in that genealogy, you can change my life. Some may be in relationship with Jesus and they're just walking at that guilty distance. Some others have never been in relationship with you. And God, the greatest need in their life is to say yes to Jesus. And I pray that would be the case today. As we move into a time of response, help us to be reflective. God, help us to be open and help us to be responsive to what you're speaking to our hearts today. We thank you that you're a God who has come to root us into your family, to make a way for us to do all of that and to rewrite our story. It may be awful. It may not seem that bad in our eyes, but you've come to rewrite it. Speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand